Hey, Sopranos podcast fans, thank you so much for joining us today. I did want to take a quick second before the episode to thank all of you so incredibly much. We hit a big milestone with our little podcast that could over here, and uh, we crossed over 10,000 downloads last week. So I know I speak for myself, Jordan, and Paul when I say thanks to each and every one of you for supporting us, subscribing us, telling your friends about us. This has grown very much, and we're still growing. Each week our numbers surprise me, especially for a podcast that has no marketing, no advertising budget, nothing like that. We're just a couple of guys talking about a great show. So we're going to keep doing our thing, and we hope you keep supporting us. Please like us on social media, at The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at Sopranos Podcast, no the, on Twitter. We love to hear from you. We love to interact with you. We love to talk about our favorite show with everyone out there. Surely you have some thoughts on our analyses. So please, drop by. Let us know what you're thinking. We love you. We can't thank you enough for your continued support. We are going to keep coming at you till we get through the whole show and then some. So please stay tuned. We got a lot of great shit coming your way. Now enjoy this episode of the Sopranos Podcast, baby. The Sopranos Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. Ramp up. Not those fucking ducks again. That's a quote by Tony Soprano in this Season 2 Episode 8 of The Sopranos, entitled Full Leather Jacket. This episode is written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess, something that surprised me, we'll talk about why, and directed by Alan Coulter, who also did the previous episode we just reviewed. Guys... Full leather jacket. A lot happened in this short amount of time. This is, I believe, the shortest Sopranos episode. It clocked in, including opening and closing credits, at just about like 42, 43 minutes. But it is not for lack of quality content. There's a lot packed into this 40 minutes. We're going to talk about it. We got uh, Richie and Tony escalating their situation. Carmela trying to get Meadow into Georgetown. And Chris Moltisanti, Matt Bevilacqua, and Sean Gismonti are about to hit a point of no return. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we are here for the Sopranos podcast. Full leather jacket. Initial thoughts, reactions, just gut response to this uh, impactful episode with a hell of an ending. Very impactful episode. It's a fun episode. It's dynamic. It's interesting. It is short, but it doesn't... Hmm. Maybe it's not that it... It doesn't feel short. It certainly doesn't feel like you were short-ended there's a lot happening including scenes that are fairly quick yeah that so there's an economy to the story so it's moving along things are happening at a clip so it doesn't it's not putting together as much screen time and obviously the ending is nerve-wracking enough that it's a forward to the next episode uh there's also an interesting story about maturation about stepping up in a way i think in some ways this episode full leather jacket is a nice companion piece to d girl d girl dealing with maybe the prodigal son dynamic aj and christopher respectively here christopher in a more mature place and meadow uh categorically more mature than aj are in this new space of uh maturity and how are their counterparts going to deal with that and those questions and how they come up uh, characterizes the episode. It, the stuff with Richie is great. It's dangerous. It's very funny. Hmm. And yeah, I thought I thought it worked. 
great episode. Uh, yeah, shorter episode, but deeply impactful. Dynamic episode, as Paul said. Exciting to watch, fun to watch. I think very much an episode about living with the consequences of your choices mm. um, and having often immediate consequences for those. I think this episode's also quite a turning point, not just for like the, the Sean, Matt, and, and Chris plot line, which of course we'll get into, but I think for Richie and Tony, I think this is the, 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 the switch that flips here in this episode. I think ultimately it's a very important episode in terms of the arc of the season. Agreed. This is what I like to refer to, uh, and I don't think this is any kind of official terminology. This is just a word I use to describe episodes like this. They usually occur in the back, in the middle back half of a season. Not quite at the end game, but past the middle. I like to call it like a Stitcher episode. You're setting up all these things in the first few episodes. All these episodes mostly have two or three different kind of storylines weaving through them. And an episode like this takes all of these dangling threads and focuses them toward the final movement of the season, if, if any of that makes sense. You're kind of raveling all these loose things and funneling the focus into, you know, full steam ahead. Now we're racing toward the end. And this is the turning point for me. Another show that does this great is The Wire. There's always a point in the wire when like a season, you know, like you're, you're laying pieces, you're laying bricks, and then something happens around episode eight or nine that shoots the show right into the final several episodes. And that's this for me. Great episode, very impactful ending. I love how much David Proval we get in this episode. Uh, Richie is one of these characters that you don't want to tip your hand too much because he's so special and menacing, but we get just the right amount of him in here. A lot of Oddly enough, humor coming from Richie, but without taking away any of his menace. Let's go into it from the top. This one has so many different things going on. I don't know that we can necessarily split this up by topic. So we're going to go in from the beginning here. I was surprised to see this episode written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess. Why is that? I'll tell you why. They ten Their episodes tend to focus more on a family, like the home dynamic. All the episodes have a little bit of both, right? No no episode of The Sopranos is without the gangster stuff, without the home stuff. But this one, I felt like, was much more of the gangster stuff, the criminal side of it, than is normal for our Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess episode. They did a lovely job with it. With it and like, like every Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess episode, there's some hilarious and amazing dinner scenes. At least two that I can think of off the top of my head, but I, you know, who knows if we'll, as we go through. But we start with a dinner scene. They're having Chinese food. Hunter has gotten into Reed, and they're discussing Meadows' college trajectory. Yeah. This is going to be a big thread this episode, Meadows applying to different schools yeah and she wants she's really got her sights set on berkeley there's a lot more um more nobel prize winners in that area uh, than any other place on earth <laughs> in the san francisco bay area yeah nobel prize for what pack and fudge <laughs> tony. um yeah meta wants berkeley which of course distresses tony and carmela carmela in particular because um well for carmela it's because berkeley is so far um, but for Tony, I think Ber Berkeley represents sort of the antithesis of everything in terms of like the values that she's been raised with. He has to, Tony has to think Janice, oh, West Coast, yeah. Janice, all that bullshit. I think that's there yeah. <laughs> too. Um, I think Meadow's not stupid. Meadow knows that her parents would not want her going to Berkeley. So I think there's a little bit of button pushing there as well. Mm. But more importantly, the child is expressing that she wants to get far away from the family. She's applied to several other places more locally, 
uh, even some of the colleges they visited in the episode College last right. season. Right. They mentioned them uh, yep. a few by name. Bowden yeah. and, and all yeah. that, but uh, also Georgetown. Very prestigious, good school. So, yeah, so they're having this conversation. Very funny moment where AJ says he wants to go to Yale or Harvard. Or was it was Harvard or West Point? West Point, yeah. Yeah, and Tony says you may get to see them on television. Yeah. <laughs> but you want to go to school like that, you got to crack the books. And then a great cut there from crack the books into Chris, Sean, and Matthew cracking a safe. I've always liked that, that cut there. Have we ever heard of this having diarrhea uh, while boosting a safe or whatever. Is that a thing? I hadn't heard of it until The Sopranos, but you can look into this. There are reports from people who have lived in the criminal life that your body reacts to the adrenaline in different ways. This isn't the only instance, again, no spoiler policy on The Sopranos podcast, this isn't the only instance we're going to see where bodily functions um, come into play during a crime scene. True, But the yeah. adrenaline and the nerves affect people in different ways. Chris says that, in fact, later on in one of these two safe-cracking scenes. It's certainly odd. It makes it memorable, more memorable than your average Joe, if there is such a thing, average Joe safe-cracking yeah. scene. I always wonder if there's like a, perhaps it's Frank Ranzulli, I don't know, if there's like a more legitimate presence on the Sopranos writing staff that was just like, oh, they're going to be cracking a safe. You know, it might be cool if this happened because I hear this thing happens. But I've never heard of that happening. I hadn't either. It could be a it could be a point or two immaturity, of course, as well, which is part of what we're dealing with in this episode. To bring it back to the dinner scene, yeah. which is fun, it's a great opening, very simple. One minute into this, showing how the Sopranos might need to branch out in their education, Tony puts Chinese chopsticks to his face and says, Sayonara. <laughs> so close but not quite and again yeah we're a setting, very tony moment. Yeah. yeah so we're setting up again the question of a meadow getting away but the family is close it's this small table it's tight-knit and again even in the family dynamic there's going to be mistrust and betrayal on the robin green mitchell burgess question i hadn't thought of them specifically the reason i love this dinner scene up front is that i see this as a very domestic episode I, the, Tony is barely out of the house in this episode. He's there. He's there talking business. He's in the backyard. He's there. And but the thing is, is that the, this episode in part represents a fusion mm-hmm. of those elements. That even within the family, and even when we're just trying to get a letter of recommendation done for our daughter, we're still reverting to gangsterism. Right. Bear in mind, I'm I'm not at all denigrating their ability to write a great episode with gangsterism in it. That is the show. If you're not good at writing gangsterism, you're not on the Sopranos writing staff. I think Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess have written some of my favorite Sopranos moments ever thus thus far. I just, um, you know, for an episode with a lot of Richie, a lot of Christopher, Sean and Matthew, I was just surprised there wasn't a co-Frank Renzulli on here. That has been the case in, in some other thing uh, episodes. But yeah, no, very well said, Paul. There is, of course... This is a beautiful example of the fusion The Sopranos offers that makes the show so so interesting. They're talking. We get some interesting information about Pussy uh, that he started out as a cat burglar, lending us perhaps the first time in the show that we are explained anything as to the genesis of his name. Perhaps he's Pussy because he's a big guy, big Pussy because there was a little Pussy. But maybe he's a pussy. Maybe that's his name, Pussy, because he was a cat burglar. And he stepped up for Johnny Soprano. During the unrest of 83. Mm. And no more on that. That's all we get. Sounds fascinating. Sounds cool. Yeah, Uh, I was like, where's that flashback? Come on, pay up. (laughs) Give me a down neck. Yeah. And without that much context or information, these two idiots perhaps are left to think that stepping up means 
almost anything mm-hmm. it means like we could shoot Christopher and, and Richie will protect us because he doesn't like him. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yep. So we're seeing the uh, the bad education there. Very good. Very good. But yeah, the unrest of '83 intrigued me too. But it's an also another way to just kind of plant the seed of. You know, the pussy is not only Tony's friend and, and a, an accomplice, but he goes back to Johnny Boy's day. He's one of the older older school guys. Then we get the scene of Carmela and Tony in bed. Something's keeping Carmela up. What is this Berkeley kick? What's going on? She does not want Meadow to go to Berkeley. And it's something that's bothering Carmela. Any uh, thoughts on Carmela's stress about Meadow going to Berkeley? I, I think this is such a common thing mothers often don't want their kids just to go too far away to school mm-hmm. um i don't think it's uh any different boys or girls they just you know they want to be able to at a moment's notice should something happen keep them close to the family you know just be within driving distance you know i remember when i was looking for colleges uh something my mom had said to me she's like you know do you want to live far or do you want to live close and I said, I guess I'd rather live closer. And she was so relieved because she was like, yeah, I just I want to be able to make sure that you can come home and it's easy to see you and all that stuff. So I was kind of limited to the state of New York or, or New Jersey when I was picking schools, New York, Jersey, Connecticut. You know, she just wanted to keep me close by. So I remember that being a big deal for her. And I think that happens with a lot of parents. They want to know that, like, you are a relatively short distance away, a few hours, right? Um, yeah. And going to school across the country, needing a plane, that, that is, that, I think a lot of mothers worry about that for yeah. sure. I admire people who go to college all the way across the country for that reason because there are a lot of times in my college experience that I needed home close. You know, I appreciated and loved the independence. I still, I'm a very independent person. I, I appreciate that level of independence. But there were some times where I would do something stupid or fucked up and I was glad to have my dad a 90-minute car ride away, you know, because yeah, I went to college not far from where I grew up. A state away, but close, you know, and so I get that. But yeah. You know, that's definitely what's going on here. It's And it's keeping Carmella up at night, this Meadow-Berkeley kick. Tony seems to find a terminus point for his ability to really do much of anything, either because he's tired and it's late at night or because this isn't his bailiwick. Um, he's not in education. He's not especially well-educated. Like, he says, what do you want me to do? And so I think it leaves Carmella in this place where... She's wanting to keep her daughter close, and what is she going to do now? Mm. And she uses some interesting tactics throughout this episode. I also think her journey is one of the most interesting here. Paul, did your family have any say in where you went to school, ultimately? Yes. I think it might have been a bit more muted, but I think it was similar. I grew up in Boston, and I went to a hostel with these guys out on Long Island. So it wasn't a hop, skip, and a jump. It was about a four-hour drive, but doable. Right. If there was an emergency, you were home in four hours. Sure. Yeah. So I think for similar reasons, my parents were relieved when the ideas I had about going to schools in California either didn't pan out. I think I applied to UCLA and didn't get in, so that kept me in the Northeast. They were happy Mm. about it. Mm. I was just watching a documentary on Netflix about the college mission scandal. Mm. And it ties into this episode because Carmela's talking about how good grades and, and SAT scores is just not enough. Yeah, she's right. She's right. There are very limited spots at these prestigious I worked in college admissions. Yeah. yeah. And there's just not, there's just far more people than there are spots. Yeah, it's totally true. And that's just the name of the game. So she's, she's not entirely wrong here. And this is also one of those interesting things where even Tony, with all his power and influence... 
you know, he's got many no power other, there. Exactly. On yeah. many other things, Tony could say, let me see what I can do. But that is just not the case here. Yeah. There's no amount of muscling Tony is going to. T- what's Tony going to do? Go bother an admissions officer and send Paulie after him? Like, come, that's just not how it, that's going to work. <laughs> uh, it, now, let me ask you a question. You worked in admissions. I did, uh, yeah. Jordan. If, uh, you know, a wise guy came in trying to get his daughter into your office, uh, you know, came in and, you know, tried to lean on you a little bit. What, what, what happens there? Well, funny enough, <laughs> uh, and not to disparage the school where I worked um, but um, the school where I worked they were just desperate to make the class so frankly anyone who wanted to get in was getting in mm. it was the scholarship committee that was discerning mm. right so basically and, and you know what it was Hofstra I worked for Hofstra I worked for the school where I also went so I graduated from Hofstra and while I was getting my master's I worked in the office of undergraduate admissions and I got to see a lot of stuff that went on there great place by the way it was lovely to work there I'm not speaking out against them but I am saying this they were a school that was hungry to fill their class, and they often did not have enough people to fill the class. Mm. So they were taking everybody, even if your grades were a little bit below what they wanted or your SAT scores weren't great, they would put you basically in a program called the School for University Studies, which was like a program that would help you like get up to par. But the scholarship committee was a real thing, and I did not get behind those doors, but I heard stories coming out of that office. Like they were like they were looking for a specific score, specific specific caliber of person, and everybody else was going in the trash. Mm. Uh, meaning everybody else was getting into the school, but they weren't getting any money. So you know, yeah, I don't know, a wise guy intimidating somebody from that office. Yeah, maybe you could probably get a scholarship out of that. Sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but if you're working in a more prestigious school, those walls are far higher. A wise guy can't do anything to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc. Yeah. Georgetown, sure. And we mentioned this not to make it necessarily about us, but to just to mention that Carmela's fear is warranted. This is a real thing, and it's not something Tony can really do anything about. So Carmela has to process this and work through it yeah which and is I, I also i don't want to present myself as an expert i worked in the events management office which was not the true admissions part of admissions but you definitely heard people talking about that i also think to be fair it's not that all this stuff about college and the so-called second baby boom and all this stuff isn't interesting or that carmela's worries aren't warranted i think they are but I also think that Carmela's ability to do anything about it is actually really limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and the gestures that she makes, this is an episode all about gestures and the baggage that comes yes. with them. But I think what Carmela is doing, and in some ways maybe why it, it does seem to help her come to a certain centeredness, is she's trying to do something to protect her daughter, to keep her close. In some ways it's manipulative. But then at the end... Even without the help of a therapist, she seems to come to a realization like, I, I'm not in control of this. Yeah. So it was a fun story to see. Absolutely. These characters are not always used to being so out of control. As far as their external circumstances, you know, they're out of control in the way they behave. Next scene, Paul and Syl pay a visit to the April <laughs> Social Club. <laughs> he was calling it that. Uh, well, I don't know what the hell else that place is, so I'm just assuming it's some kind of sh- uh, thing. Well, yeah, it's kind of yeah, like yeah. we get the impression that Richie—he's a capo now, mm-hmm. right? So he has his—that's his domain. Yeah, yeah sure. it's like where where he headquarters his group. Some random old man bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> they're the reason for the visit is that Paul and Sill are relaying to Richie that he needs to go send his uh, send his underling Vito and who runs construction business. To go build a ramp on Beansy's house, make it handicap accessible. And, you know, Richie just... We we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded, guys. Something about Beansy, Richie just... He's he's just dismissing them. 
I, the line, uh, one line exchange. Oh my god! That best, made me never. Best line of the episode. That made me never walk again. Never say never or something like that. And he says, "No, say never." He's a shopping cart from here on out. <laughs> so rude, so rude, so disrespectful. You know, they're telling him to go over. He's just being flipping with them. Meanwhile, over there, I could fuck his wife. Uh, you're gonna build Beansy a ramp, and he ends the scene with, uh, "I'm gonna build a ramp up to your ass." Drive yep. a Lionel up in there. Mm-hmm. Which is hilarious imagery. It's a completely absurd thing to say. Childish, but also very funny. But yeah, building Beansy a ramp. This is... Uh, I would love to know what the history is between Beansy and Richie. Why he has this ire, this total, utter contempt for this man. And <laughs> just only making the situation worse. I don't. I wonder if Tony realizes how much worse he's making things by making Richie atone for this. Um... <laughs> But, yeah, I, I mean, as we'll see in this episode, getting him to build this ramp is only going to create more problems. We talk a lot on this podcast about the scene we don't see. And what happened between the Aprils and Richie? Richie says later on in a scene with Tony, you know, that uh, he was still been selling nickel bags on, on Jefferson Avenue or, or somewhere. Uh, if it wasn't, if it for, wasn't Jackie, for Jackie. Yeah. yeah. So, who the hell knows? There's definitely history that we're not that we're not privy to. I like that they leave it a mystery. But Richie is a sadistic monster, no doubt about it. But he's a particularly bad sadistic monster when it comes to Beansy. He just loves making this guy miserable. Yeah. It also, something that struck me about this scene is that Polly and Silvio are underbosses, essentially, in this family. Tony is the only one that outranks them. They outrank Richie. He is talking to them, and you can tell from the way that they react that Silvio is playing it cool. And Polly is barely holding it together. Mm-hmm. So again, not good. Not smart. Mm. This is all building... Nora's going to visit Beansy in the hospital smart. But there's this oscillation, it seems, in this episode with Richie between that bravado and a sentimental quality and attempts to mend yeah. fences with Tony or it's careerism or both. It's it's hard because Richie Richie's not a political character, he's an elemental character and so you can only just see him kind of react thing react to things naturally. I, I don't think mm. there's a lot of artifice to Richie much to like our chagrin as we watch him <laughs> just sort of move through life. Um, but I think that's one of the things that make this Richie Aprile character and this actor's performance so enjoyable to watch is that he is not a guarded character. He's he's like an animal. He really is. I think mm. that was our first thing that we said about him back when we first recorded. I think he shows up in episode two mm-hmm. of this season for the first time, right? So three. Sorry, episode Toodle three. Right, so when we recorded that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this animalistic thing. You're watching an animal. Mm. Uh, that's always what I think when I think of Richie. And I, I think that's the case here, too. Yeah, the underbosses of the family show a little deference. Right? A little bit of respect in the scene. No, no fucking way. Fuck you. I'll build a ramp up to your ass. Oh my god! <laughs> what, what if Polly just leapt on you? Polly's crazy too, Richie. Do you forget? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. He gives no fucks. He's, you know, that's Richie in a nutshell. You said it. I love the, I love the way you worded that. Elemental, not political. That's great. That's great. Then we see Carmela accost a reluctant genie Kuzumano in the backyard. Kuzumano, we're touching back in with the Kuzumanos. It's been a little bit. It's been a bit. I think last we saw them in any kind of significant way, uh, they were left with a package that Tony yep. <laughs> gave them for a hit as a hit. And um, Carmela is about to ask Genie for a letter when Genie tries to scoot out of there. But essentially, Genie's sister Joan is an alumni of Georgetown and Georgetown Law and 
very affiliated alumnus with Georgetown and wants Joan to write Meadow a letter of recommendation. And Jeannie is very clearly put off by this. and um, As she should be. Yes. What a position to be put in. And again, Joan, later on, we're going to talk about how she gets uh, trapped in this situation too. But yeah, Carmela, what, what do we think of Carmela's strategy here to... What's the guarantee? Here's here's the flaw in Carmela's plan, unfortunately, and why it, it seems like a fruitless effort to me, even if she gets what she wants. So even if she gets into Georgetown, there's no guarantee she wouldn't get into Berkeley also. And if she gets into both schools, who knows? You know what I mean? Although she said Georgetown's a total reach for her. So, you know, I don't know. But she, you know, I, it's crazy. It's a crazy situation. I, I think Carmela's desperate here. Carmela's desperate for control. She wants to be in control of a situation that she, as Paul said, really has no control over, and she's spinning. You know, the uh, tactics that she uses both on uh, Jeannie and later on Joni are really cool to watch. Mm. Uh, the kind of manipulation and power that she has and her ability to intimidate is cool to watch. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's her adding a little bit of gangsterism, bringing some gangsterism to their world, to the legitimate world, to the world of the Madagon. <laughs> right. Um, so that was it's, it's it's fun to see, even if, as as Paul has already acknowledged, it's it's kind of fruitless, ultimately. And maybe for the same reason that you brought up, she could get into both schools, you know, mm. uh, that's I mean, we'll get to it. But that's part of the reason why she fishes that letter out of the trash. She realizes, you know, I you know what? I'm not God. I, I don't know. I don't I don't have a I don't have the full control here that I want. Mm. The, the Sopranos is a show filled with characters deluding themselves and other people. So I do think. Carmela's not a saint. She does this stuff and she lies and she lies to herself like other people. But I I will give it up to her that I think that she does realize some of her self-delusion in the course of this episode. I also got to give credit, as Jordan was saying, about her bringing up gangsterism or bringing it into this world. I think my note was that Carmela is a better gangster than the career gangsters. Her idea of stepping up is certainly more sophisticated than idiots Sean and Matt. And her <laughs> visit to Joan is way smarter than Richie's visit to Beansy. Because Carmella has plausible deniability. Threaten? What threaten? Like, it's I all... I brought her a pie! It's all... Yeah, it's all laid out. This is innocent. If you take... I don't give a shit if that woman is a lawyer. If you tape that conversation, you have nothing on Carmella. If yeah. you played it for Carmella three months later, Carmella would remember it as innocent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. That's really good. Yeah. Next scene we get... An interesting scene. We meet a new character, Liz LaServa, Adriana's mother. <laughs> Chris has gone to repair the damage. He made his decision at the end of D-Girl. We talked at length about his journey in the previous episode. And he shows up with a ring. Very funny dialogue here. Chris is just shoving Liz off. Yeah, he's just physically, he physically shoves her out of the way. Rips the phone out of her hand. Uh, you know. Go in the other room. Yeah, 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 exactly. He tells her, go in the other room. You know, she embarrasses Adriana. I hear you sobbing in your bed at night. And she's just like, Ma. These two, Lily commented when we were watching it, my wife Lily, that Adriana, and and to, to me, Christopher too, they both feel and look very young in this scene. You yeah, know, Adriana especially, yeah. Yeah, they're kids in love and the mother's there. and Her mother who looks like just like her, like Adriana will grow up to be that woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great casting. Yeah, this woman does a nice job with this. Yeah, so she, he brings out a ring. I, I want to marry you, which is the turning point. She says, I never want to see you again. I want to marry you. What? Now she's interested. <laughs> <laughs> and she, of course, very funny lines there. I bet there's bits, I bet there was in Zane's window this morning. I bet there's bits of broken glass in it. <laughs> and tells her flat out, you know, if, next time he hurts you, this door is closed to you. She, something to that effect. 
and Adriana sees the ring, and it's, uh, you know, what do we think of all this? First of all, I think uh, Adriana's mother's threat of this door will be closed to you, I think, an empty threat. I of don't course. Think that's, you know, that's not, that's not true. I think Adriana's mother is used to this kind of guy being in her life. I'm sure that's probably what Adriana's father was like, even though we don't meet that character. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, so I think she, she does want to prevent her daughter from making this mistake, but it's half-hearted. You know, she's not calling 911. She's not finding another phone in the house. You know, she's not beating Chris with a, you know, whatever she has lying around, fireplace poker, whatever. She probably sees herself making the same mistake, but 20 years prior or 25 years prior. Adriana's been wanting this for a long time. Chris knows that. I'm a little upset that it was not a more romantic proposal. You always hope that a proposal will be romantic and not just made in reconciliation almost. But perhaps we should take what Adriana is feeling and expressing in this scene as uh, proof enough that it is good. You know, uh, maybe it doesn't need to be over a candlelit dinner or, uh, you know, in a, in a quiet park somewhere or something like that. You know what? He proposed. She was so happy. She cried. They embraced. It's good enough for me. And then uh, we get this very cool scene at Tony's house. First of all, Junior. It's been a little bit. <laughs> junior, junior. What's up, Junior? I love this line when Richie shows up. Oh, I was wondering why the squirrels went quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I mention this every episode, but Tony just has to take these little shots at Richie. He just can't resist uh, that that relationship. His nephew of yours. He's a ball breaker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's nice seeing these three guys together. They have a little talk about the uh, you know DVD business that they're in, and um, you know that funny little moment was Johnny. What does Johnny Sack think of all this? Fuck New York, Junior. Just <laughs> gets out there like that escapes him, and then. Uh, <laughs> And then they go out to the driveway and we get this key scene that is the, you know, impetus for the remaining thread between Richie and Tony in this episode and the title of the episode. They go out to the, well, first of all, Junior's there to get some arugula rob for the garden. Right. We see Bobby Bacala again. It's there been a little is. while since we've seen Bobby. And With his uh, hands all over the finish. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tony hands him the arugula rob and says, here, here's the arugula rob. Don't drench it in oil this time. He <laughs> likes to mop with his bread. It's not my fault. <laughs> so funny. So sweet. And then uh, they have their conversation. And then Tony and Richie step down. Richie's like, you know, who's I? he's thinking I'm going to talk to Tony. Maybe it was Paulie and Syl came up with the ramp idea. He's like, whose idea was this fucking ramp? And Tony just kind of makes it clear that, you know, this was, this came down from him. One little nuance that I like here is Junior over here is Tony and Richie talking about Beansy, and we get this little shot of Junior just like kind of listen, listening, half listening to Bobby, half listening to Tony and Richie. And Junior, knowing that Richie looks up to him, kind of weighs in in a way without having to, like, weighs in without weighing in. Yep. A terrible accident that kid had. Mm-hmm. And that's when Richie changes his mind from, what the fuck, to, yeah, it's done. So Junior did a nice job there. A very subtly weighing in as the boss and someone Richie respects. Let's tell you something. Dominic Chinese is a fucking monster. He's so good. Okay, yeah. that's so many lines in one look, and we haven't seen Junior in a bit. You know, mm-hmm. really good. Yeah, he's incredible, and they, they, they. You like we said, you know, this isn't. He's not as central to this season as he is in previous seasons, but any scene he's in, he just he takes it to the moon. He's really wonderful, and Junior is a terrific character. Terrible accident that kid had, and then we're introduced to. The jacket! Rocco, Rocco DeMeo's jacket, which is an artifact from the good old days. Yeah. And the story, the legend of this jacket 
So that Rocco DeMeo was a big fucking badass back in the day. He wore this jacket around. This jacket's hideous, by the way. <laughs> and uh, Toughest rep in Essex County. Yeah. But he never came back here after I got through with him. Right. Richie took care of this guy. I guess essentially took him off the street. I don't know if he killed him or... Probably not. He probably just beat him up and sent him away and got his jacket. Now. Uh, and he wants Tony to wear this as... He's giving him a tribute. He's saying, you know, I could never fill out this jacket. Because clearly this jacket, whoever Rocco DeMeo was... He was a tall, big guy, like mm -hmm. Tony. Mm -hmm. uh, and to Richie's credit, the jacket fits Tony perfectly, but it is a hideous jacket. And it is a jacket from the 1970s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's one decade that jacket it could or should have existed in, and that's the 70s. <laughs> and it's an excuse to, whenever the jacket even comes up, to tell a story about how you were a badass. Oh, right? yeah. About how yeah. you dominated a guy who is Tony's size. It's a weird... It's something that feels like left-handed in it, but... But the sentiment is not fake. It's not... It, yeah, I don't, Richie's I don't, really trying here. Yeah, I don't think Richie's being sinister. I don't think it's like, wear the jacket of my former enemy kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's more like, I wish I could wear this jacket, me, myself, I really would, but I'm five foot four, you know, yeah. and you're six two or whatever you are. You could wear it, you know. And Jordan and I were talking a little bit, I think when Paul was taking a break earlier or something in between uh, recording these, where... Um, we were talking about, like, this might be the one time I actually felt sorry. I felt a little pity for Richie. He is trying here, and this jacket, even in his own twisted way, means something to him. It's 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 represents accomplishment. It represents a better era. It represents his domination and control, which means a lot to him. And he's offering it as a gift. This The relationship between these guys has been very tense since Richie got out. And this is the most overt gesture Richie has shown Tony since the beginning. So I felt a little pity for him here because Tony very clearly doesn't like the jacket. Richie can't quite tell. Talks about the fine Corinthian leather. Very well may be the case, but Tony is, is feels the, about the jacket that we all do. Like, oh my God, does he expect me to wear this? And so it's another <laughs> gesture that has this baggage to it. Unfortunately, it's like gestures that can be ill-received, not well-received. There's a really funny bit here. The Sopranos does this sometimes with jokes, but they're not like emphasized. There's one, I guess, speaking to a bit of Richie's vapid set of ideas, and he says, look, the Tao says you gotta close one door before another one can open. So I guess Janice is reading the Tao to him now, or something. <laughs> but I swear to God, the moment he is done saying, you gotta close one door before another one can open, in the background, Bocciolieri closes the hood of Junior's trunk, and Junior says, was that so hard to do? So, you know, yeah. um, they're kind of having some fun with him there. Yep. But, so that just adds up to a great scene, a uh, great setup for this whole story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we get this quick scene that's followed up two scenes later. Carmela gets a letter from Berkeley for Meadow. Well, it's Meadow's letter. Carmela opens it because it's from Berkeley. And they're requesting something didn't go through. There's a missing document. The application won't be processed. And Carmela... A little tisk tisk moment here for Carmela. She throws the letter in the garbage. We know this is wrong. She knows it's wrong because literally two scenes later, she's clawing it out of the garbage, wiping the coffee grounds and garbage of the rest of the day off of it, mm -hmm. and putting it back onto its uh, place on the counter there. So this is still keeping Carmela up. This is still nagging at her, and we're gonna follow up on that very soon. Next scene, Vito. Uh, Vito Spatafore, Richie's one of Richie's underlings, the big uh, fat guy played by Joe Gannascoli, shows up um, with his brother to 
build a ramp on Beansy's house. They're here to make the ramp. Gia Gaeta opens the door and gives them the only reasonable response, which is get the hell out of here. You're here, you know, Richie sent you. I don't want anything from that man after what he did. And Vito says, well, you know, I'm not going to tell Richie this isn't getting done. And he whistles and calls the guys out. And of course, we find out in the next scene on this story thread that they ripped up the house and yeah, uh, just... didn't go back. Tony's involvement here, I understand it, but it's just like, it's just giving Richie like an excuse to just continue to ruin these people's lives in a way, you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know, Tony, maybe have, you have other construction contacts, clearly. That's like, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the businesses that you're in, have someone else do it and Richie pay for it, right? Wouldn't have that been the same thing? Mm -hmm. You know, because of course, as soon as this woman hears this is from Richie April, she wants nothing to do with it. And they do a shitty job. Right? They don't finish the job. Now the house is in shambles too. Now she's dealing with a husband going through the worst days of his life and she doesn't have a home to come back to that's in one piece. And it's one of these Jersey houses that has like a, you know, 10 step staircase yeah. leading up from the street. Uh, no accident, of course, that this is where Rich <laughs> Beansy's going to have to live after what happened to him. Uh, yeah, so it's really terrible, unfortunate situation. Tony did not make this worse by forcing this ramp, it, uh, did not make this better. By forcing this ramp issue. Next scene, another Richie underling, Donnie Kay, introduces Matt Bevilacqua and Sean Gismonti to uh, Richie. This is on the heels of a scene that I jumped over during talking about Carmella. But the second scene with Chris, Matt, and Sean cracking safes. Chris explains to Matt and Sean that Tony's take comes out of their end of the job. That Chris is going to get a full cut. And what they kick upstairs to Tony is going to come out of Matt and Sean. That's that's how it is in the beginning, Chris tells them. And so the very next scene, they're brought before Richie. I love the blocking in this scene. For those of you who aren't involved in acting or show business, blocking is basically referring to the way actors move in any given scene, where they're told to stand, where they move to, where they go. That's called blocking. And the way the scene is blocked, Richie doesn't even look at them. Richie probably doesn't even know what Matt and Sean looks like. He's he's we got the camera right up on him and he's staring the other direction and they're brought before him and he's ripping on Chris. They're laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's just a setup scene, but uh, you know Richie plays it well. I enjoy that he doesn't look at them. I mean, just emphasis on how unimportant these two are, and that is one of the focal points of this episode is that these two feel so sidelined and so small and insignificant that they feel like they have to do something about it. Richie trying to make himself seem more important, I think, by not looking at them, by not being at all friendly, by having some jokes at Christopher's expense, whom he knows, you know, that's their boss. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he's, and he's testing them a bit. If there's ever anything that you can do for me, let me know. You know, he plants that seed early, and he thinks, you know, maybe these are some men I could use at some point. He does not particularly care for Christopher, which he makes known in this scene. It just, it's a, a scene where a lot of good information drops that they're going to process. Carmela's story with Meadow is possibly about, or it is certainly about an overemphasis or being overly protective, but nobody is really taking close care of Sean and Matt and left to their own devices. They seem to be taking the wrong lessons from every single interaction that they have. Richie's line when he says to them, if there's anything ever, if there's ever anything you can do for me, let me know, is completely noncommittal. Mm-hmm. He's dragging on the cigarette, whatever. They take it as some sort of justification later on that they think he might protect them. Right after he after they shoot. Chris. Oh, they totally misread that. I mean, because if you're if you're if you're speaking mob lingo, he's not saying 
he's not talking about a personal favor there. No. He's saying if you have any way to make me money, come talk to me. If you have a job or something. That's how you actually break in. The mob, you have to be an earner. You have to be a go-getter. You have to go make the money and kick it up to the bosses to get their attention. He's not talking about a personal favor. And he certainly gave no indication that they should do what they end up doing. But they're idiots and they're desperate and they feel stepped on and disrespected. And that's not going to get any better in the next scene we see these guys. No. But <laughs> we then get the scene with Joan and Jeannie. I don't know how much there is to say about this one. It kind of advances. Are they the same actress? Is, I was going to say, it is the same actress playing both Joan okay. and Jeannie. Yep. Yeah. They did a, a, a split screen gimmick there. And mm. She does a nice job with that. This, yeah. is, this must be, this must be, you know, if you're like kind of one of these supporting characters that shows up once, maybe twice a season, this must be a nice surprise to get this script and get to work on this. So I'm happy for, for her for that. And uh, did a nice job. But basically, Joan tells Jeannie, no, tell Carmilla, no, I'm writing a letter for a young Dominican boy with a, <laughs> you know, 5.2 average and, and all of this stuff. And, Jeannie's like, oh, she's my neighbor. Jeannie's being the yuppie. She's scared to be impolite. Can I just say this, though? <laughs> it is 100%, 110% inappropriate for Carmela to ask for this letter. Yeah. Okay. But also, the reason why... Uh, the reason Joni gives for not being able to write the letter is also bullshit. Mm. Okay? Carmela shouldn't be asking for it. It is inappropriate. There's a question of manners and appropriateness for sure. But the Joni reason that, that she can't do it... It's not because she... I mean, I write how many recommendation letters every year? She could write as many as she wants. There's, there's no quota. Mm. You know, it, it would just be no. It's, I don't know her, right? right? But she's not hearing her situ sister's situation. Yeah. The big gangster's wife basically said, I have to do this. Just fucking do it, right? It is inappropriate, but Joni's reason for not doing it couldn't be more fucking clueless. Yep. And she tells her, deal with it, Jeannie, okay? You know, just like... Yeah, how is she supposed to deal with it, Joni? Mm. You know, this yeah. is just... Joni's just not living in the real world here. Yeah. Uh, I don't like Jeannie Cusimano. Like, I think she's a pretentious asshole. Yeah. But she's responding to the threat appropriately. Okay? <laughs> yes. She understands the conversation that Carmela had with her over the fence. And Joni's about to understand it soon, too. Correct. Yep, very true. We then get the uh, Sunday dinner scene. It's been a while since we've had a nice Sunday dinner scene. This is a great uh, one. Scene. I like that... Uh, <laughs> Anytime we see uh, Hugh, Carmela's father and mother, <laughs> uh, Hugh and Mary, I think, Mary DeAngelis, yep. is that the character's name? Yeah, Mary, Hugh and Mary. Mary orders him out of the foot seat and Hot. come sit next to him. Hot Wheels after dinner, Grandpa? Oof. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. No, sit. Gents, sit. Yeah, a lot of humor. Yeah. These dinner scenes are always electric, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Carmela was so funny to say that to Janice, who's pouring her glass of wine, not even making, the attempt, <laughs> not, not making the attempt at all. You know, Richie being out of prison. You know, one thing I I was researching a project that I'm not going to talk about here, but it, it dealt with ex-cons and people who spent time in prison. And so in my research, talking to people who had spent time in prison, one thing I know from a lot of people that has said the same thing that spent any significant time in prison is... Things like a family dinner really hit the spot when you're when you're out of jail. And so Richie talking, having this moment where it's like, this is what it's all about, family, you know, sitting at the table. Uh, you know, they're giving Richie as soft a touch as they can give him, I think, in this episode. I think that's a genuine expression of being happy to be there for dinner. And then the one you know, in the kitchen over in the kitchen one room over, Tony is 
talking about, you know, I want him where I can see him, sticking a knife <laughs> in the That's what family means. Yeah, knife yeah. in the crown yeah, roast. Exactly. <laughs> um, by the way, that crown roast looks... Looked amazing. They know how to, I actually wrote, they know how to film a crown roast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And then Meadow comes in. Uh, she was at Hunter's all night. This night she was at Hunter's must have been when Carmela threw out the letter from Berkeley because Meadow's got a bunch of mail on the table. She gets a call from Jeannie while Meadow's looking at the mail. She notices the damage to the envelope. Carmela was saved by the phone call on that one. And uh, she wants to know what happened. And uh, Jeannie basically says, I'm sorry, Joan can't do it. Carmela is not, you know, a normal person's answer might be, oh, all right, you know, I just, well, thank you for asking. But she's like immediately like, no, why not? Making Jeannie have to explain it, making Mm. Jeannie even more uncomfortable. But as uncomfortable as Jeannie is in this phone call, uh, you can tell she's happy to finally wash her hands of it because it's uh, it's over. She well, I gotta go. Um, bye. And it's not her problem anymore. Uh, <laughs> and it's about to be Joni's problem. But Carmela is not going to give up. She hangs up. Meadow sees the letter. Of course, we know that she's not going to take Jeannie's advice, who suggests getting a letter from Father Intentola, Father <laughs> Phil. Uh, Carmela's that's like a hard no at this yeah. point. <laughs> that might matter even more at Georgetown. What fucking bullshit that is. <laughs> and she goes right to Joan. That's the next scene. Brings her a regat pie with pineapples. I like the little, myst- like, you know, the the, the flub she has. Uh, fielder, is it? Meadow. Ah, yes. Uh, she fucks up Meadow's name. Calls <laughs> On her purpose. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I don't like these people. No, 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 they're terrible. I don't, no, I don't. The show, the show does a really nice job with, uh, you're on the soprano side pretty much regardless. Yeah. I just, I do not like these fake pretentious office folks. I do not like them when they're lawyers, accountants, stockbrokers, whatever they are. Them, to me, always, always feel disingenuous in some way. Always. Mm-hmm. No, the Kuzumanos suck. We saw this they during... They suck. They saw this during Hit as a Hit last season, yeah. and they're all the stockbroker friends, and yeah, no, the, the show does not portray them in a sympathetic or enjoyable light at all. They're they're pricks. Which is why we're able to deal with Carmela, who's one of our, I, I want to say, leans more moral characters. Not always, uh, but, you know, she's definitely uh, higher up on our moral spectrum than someone like Tony. Uh, she struggles with good and evil yes. more than the other characters. Correct. Almost, that's a, almost yeah. more than anybody. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. But, you know, it's fun to see Carmela kind of laying it on here and and like you you said so eloquently i don't know how much more there is to say in a better way than what you said earlier paul that like she does this in a way that is masterful she and, does she and does fearless. exactly yeah uh, i mean Joni says some things that i think would wither a normal person i'm an officer of the court you're a lawyer yeah you know carmel puts her right in her place uh-huh are and you threatening know- me threatening you well, i i brought you a pie yeah and she knows when to hit the gas and she knows when to lay off it's masterful work don't make me beg here. Saying something a little bit charging and challenging, and then come on, be you know, be sympathetic. Right. It, it laying on and and off. the threat is there. Mm-hmm. It's right under that. Yeah. Because Joni, all she has to look is right under the words that are saying, and it's just like I'm not leaving you alone until this is done, and you know who I'm associated with. Yeah. And that's all she has to say. And Paul, you, I mean, I, I, I can't say it better. Yeah. You could play that conversation back word for word, and there's not an incriminating thing in there. She could it's, run to the cops and say, I yeah. was just threatened, and then they look at a transcript of right. the conversation. Like, this Where woman uh, brought you a pie yeah. and asked you to write a letter. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's so beautifully done. And the way Carmela leaves the scene, i got to go, here's Meadow's transcript, thank you. Doesn't even give her a chance to respond or rebuke the transcripts. She drops it off and says, thank you. The implication being, I'm expecting this. 
and just leaves. Well, and, and you'll be seeing me again. Yeah, exactly. Very well done, Carm. Carm is a great gangster when she needs to be. It's not really so different than any of our other characters making a collection, is it? Really? You know? Mm. Yeah. The, the agreement is struck. I'll be back. Mm-hmm. Then we get this hilarious scene at the Bing where Sean and Matt see Tony. They're just hanging out at the bar, and they see Tony go into the bathroom, figure, oh, this is our chance to be friends with Tony. They go in there and make complete asses of themselves. They'd have been better off with Tony never having gone into this bathroom. <laughs> yeah. uh, Matthew goes in there, starts peeing next to him, says who he is. Tony says, yeah, I know. <laughs> Doesn't fucking care. Does not give a shit. Uh, talks about uh, the stripper. Tony just kind of is like, all right. And then Sean completely blows it, flat out speaking about their criminal enterprise in the middle of a... <laughs> in the middle of the, of, of the bathroom, and Tony dries his hand. I love that there's no paper towels, and he dries his hands on Sean's shirt as he's wringing it, and <laughs> saying, "Jesus Christ, you stupid little shit-eating twat! Ain't you ever heard of wiretaps?" <laughs> and <laughs> Sean is stupider than Matt, but it is close. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you let me do all the talking. You always do that. Uh, it's worth noting in the previous dinner scene, I didn't mention this when we were talking about the dinner scene, but Richie asked about the jacket, mm-hmm. tells everyone at the table, oh, I gave him this beautiful jacket, you know, with the belt and everything. And, uh, then we get the scene outside Satrial's, we're talking about the ramp again, this is when Paulie and Syl mentioned that your, you know, your boys went out there, ripped up the place and never went back. And Richie gives an excuse that they're fixing up Tony's, uh, Janice's mother's place, which all due respect is also your boss's mother's place. And then Tony shows up, and Richie's asks him right away about the jacket. It's in the car. You want me to go get it? <laughs> uh, so that's the third time since he, or second or third time since giving Tony the jacket that he's brought up the jacket in front of other people. Gives the story yet again. The jacket I took off Rocco de Mayo. Tony's eating a cookie and kind of not really paying attention. But just, I mean, the episode emphasizes emphasizes this so much in a, such a such a short period of time. This jacket means so much to Richie April. It really does. Mm-hmm. It is pulling on my heartstrings a bit. It really is. <laughs> I know it's aggravating. It's a little annoying. But he's like almost like a little kid with it a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? This thing had like holy significance to him. Yeah. Jeannie comes over to drop off the pie plate <laughs> and uh, mention that her sister was knocked the fuck over by the transcripts. She also, they didn't mention it, but she must have been moved by... Uh, Meadows' essay on the uh, polar ice caps that made her cry. It was so poignant, uh, Carmela said earlier in the episode. Um, and uh, Carmela doesn't, she's being shrewd as ever, she doesn't just take her word for it. She wants a copy of the letter. Yep. He says, oh, I can get it. I can get it. So, you know, she wants to make sure it exists. So that happens. And then we get... <laughs> I love this scene so much. Is this Matt and Sean versus Matt and Sean Furio? watching the TV, yeah. and Furio shows up to pick up Tony's money. Whew. Okay, so... First of all, when the doorbell rings, they start hiding their bongs and, like, their other gangster paraphernalia as if it, they're like John Dillinger. And, like, of course nobody gives a shit. It's just Furio looking for the boss's money. Yeah, and by the way, ignore the stack of stolen televisions in their apartment. Yeah, yeah But right. hide, hide, hide the gun and the bong... For fuck's sake. <laughs> and then Furio shows up, and this is, I believe, the first we've seen of Furio since his uh, 
massive uh, debut in Jersey at the end of um, Big Girls Don't Cry. So we know what it means when Furio shows up somewhere that you can't fuck with this guy. So because of what he did in Big Girls Don't Cry, there's an instant gravitas when this guy shows up. He means business, he's not to be fucked with, and he will fuck you up. <laughs> and he's there with some other random Italian schmuck that we don't know. <laughs> and they're there to collect the $7,000 that is owed to Tony. And then he demands an extra thousand. Here's a question. This is purely for curiosity's sake. I don't think it has any bearing on the the scene or the episode at all. Does Furio just not take these guys seriously at all and thinks, I'm just going to take a thousand dollars from them because fuck them? Absolutely. Or did Tony say, hey, and, you know, was Tony mad about the bathroom thing and said, hey, crack these guys for me? I don't think Tony would be petty like that with them. I think these guys matter so little that Tony's not even going to think about the bathroom thing again. Right. I don't think he's taxing them for that. I think Furio is actually, more to your point, everyone knows I'm a fucking badass in this family. Give me $1,000 because I'm fucking Furio. <laughs> right. What are they going to do? Say no? He'll beat them to death. Yes. And no one will care. You're right. Yeah, exactly. Which That's is kind the of their reaction. It's like, oh, you're really going to do this to us? Yeah, give me $1,000. Fuck, he's going to kill us. Give him $1,000. Yeah. And that's how little they matter. And that's just it's just more and more hits to their self-esteem over and over and over again. Because no one cares about these guys. Furio could beat them to death in that moment. And no, like he probably wouldn't even get a lecture from Tony. No, I mean, yeah. seriously. Furio could do anything he wanted to those two guys in that moment. Kill them, mutilate the corpses, whatever. <laughs> and Tony would be like, Furio, come on, man. Like, it would be like barely a reprimand. Yeah, yeah. I think the scene hits home for them because the beat before then is them trying to talk to Tony in the bathroom at the Bing, and this is much more the substance of their interaction with gangsterism. They, they're the low man on the totem pole on these jobs, they kick up to Tony, but it's just Furio coming by and saying, the boss, money, and that's it. Yep. And then give me an extra thousand dollars because I said so right. is, is the final insult. Um, so it's them, yeah, it's them seeing how unimportant they are, where they are in the pecking order, which is nowhere. Yeah. And Furio is so well used Mm -hmm. in this capacity because when, when you want to charm somebody, you could use Furio, but when you really want to make a point that either somebody needs to get the shit kicked out of them or someone is just a civilian, do with them what you will, you send Furio. Mm. So. Yeah. Though, uh, Chris, to your point, we can entertain the other side only because Furio comes to make that collection. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Tony could have actually sent anyone. We have to imagine, even if we don't see them, Tony has numerous other underlings. Furio is the hammer. Why do you send that guy especially? Yeah. So, possible. Right. It's just, yeah, it's funny. I like that he doesn't even ask a second time. He just says, give me $1,000. And they're like, <laughs> what? And then he just snaps and does this thing with his fingers, and they have to go get it. Like, give him this fucking, you know, give it to him. Uh, <laughs> it's fucking great. Just great. Love it. Then we drop in on Chris and Aid post-coitus. They're very happy. Chris is rededicating himself down the line. Focus. No more drugs. No more distractions. These have been problems for Chris in the past. For all intents and purposes, we're seeing that the two of them are happy together. The sex is great. The vibe is great. She Chris loves, loves her ring. She loves her ring. Chris seems genuine. Uh, it seems like Tony's conversation and come to Jesus meeting in the last episode was... Uh, you know, at least at this moment, seems to have had an effect on Chris. And he's made his decision, he's rationalized his decision, and we're just kind of touching in on that. Given what happens later in this episode, I think seasoned Sopranos watchers can probably say that this scene is just a little too happy 
for sure. <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Yep. There's a little too much going right. At uh, well, this point. that in fact I think is what the scene is. Yeah, and the whole story of this episode is the irony of Chris getting shot down in the street, precisely at the moment that he seems to be coming into a maturation as a real gangster. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Then we get this great scene. <laughs> what is Carmela doing? She's drawing AJ. Uh, yeah, I don't know what was up with that. She's yeah. learning how to draw. Maybe this is something that someone who's home all day would try to pick up. Uh, you know, someone who is going to accept the fact that their kids are leaving the house might need a hobby. Exactly. There you yeah. go. Oh, yes, good, exactly. good, good pick up, Paul. Good. Yeah. Um, and Richie shows up with uh, <laughs> tripe and tomatoes. I love this food, Paul. Yeah. In this episode, because it's, uh, I, I'm sure it's delicious. By the way. It's essentially an unappealing dish, right? This is not a delicious lasagna. It's not a regal pie, certainly. Tripe and tomatoes is a very particular taste, yes. right? And he acknowledges that in his dialogue with Carmela, right? That they're the only two that appreciate this kind of thing, and that's why he's brought it. Just like Richie is an acquired taste, right? Mm-hmm. He's trying to be charming, mm-hmm. but it's the Richie kind of charm. It's not Tony's charm, lasagna. Yeah. It's... Tripe. tripe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and maybe it's the best tripe ever is still tripe. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's essentially unappealing, but the gesture is kind. It's, this is an episode about offerings, right? Is this not the jacket over again? Right? Mm-hmm. Red small. Yeah. And they're sitting there having a, you know, a cup of coffee and they're talking about, uh, Janice and Richie are not just a flash in the pan. We're starting to... They showed up together at Sunday dinner. Janice is dressing more like a Jersey housewife by the day. (laughs) And Richie's like, yeah, we're doing well. Things are, you know, for all intents and purposes, Richie and Janice, this isn't a a fling again. They're they're doing much better than they did back in the day, uh, as Tony said a few episodes ago, grabbing blowjobs on my mother's couch. (laughs) They're they're an item. Richie and Janice are an item. And then my heart has to break. It's just a gut rent. It's funny a little bit, but it's also this is this was truly heartbreaking. This moment. It's heartbreaking because of how he played it. Yeah, I'm giving it all to the actor. I really am. Oh, Proval kills this moment. Yeah, this is so one, it's um, actually might be one of my favorite Richie acting moments. Yeah, because he does the menacing thing so well. But we see this guts him. He is hurt yeah. by this. Uh, Liliana comes back, the housekeeper, yep. uh, with her husband, whose name I didn't catch. Stasiu. Thank you. He's a, a Polish uh, man. Yep. And he is wearing uh, Rocco Domano's jacket. Mm-hmm. Which is a jacket, but it's fucking unmistakable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even he looks bad in it, too. Yeah. And, you know, he has to see this as an insult, first of all, to give a gift away. And then second of all, it's a status thing for Richie, too. Giving the gift away is one thing, but to his Polish, as Richie would, would, would say, his Polish maid's husband, who is a cab driver. Yeah. Drives cabs. Now, was an engineer back in his home country, but is driving cabs, and, and that's just, like, such a kick in the teeth. And the, Rich, yeah. The moment is played with such heartbreak and quietude, and it's spoken just under the pitch of the microphone that they're using for the scene. Yeah. I gotta go. Yeah. Like, it's just... He barely gets it out. Yeah, he's gutted. My heart actually broke. And he's a horrible, vicious man. And I hope he dies. You know I mean? like, <laughs> right, right. He's a yes. horrible man. Yeah. But just, you saw the moment, and it was like, oh my god, that is one of the best active moments of the season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that shot of Richie's face almost comes from the point of view of the jacket. 
as if to mm. say, hey, bye, you know, <laughs> as it's like kind of panning past him and we're following his head as he watches this guy walk into the basement. Oh, yeah, great. I, I agree. This is probably David Proval's finest moment up to this point and one of the best in the series. It's What's really the good. other thing with this, the tension overall? is that I think this episode mostly builds tension between Richie and Tony. And for much of it, if I were watching this for the first time, I would think that that's where the episode is building. Mm -hmm. And in some way, maybe it does, except that has to be put on hold because at the end of this episode, Chris got shot. Right. And, you know, (laughs) now I'm a Sopranos maniac, so I think about the Sopranos multiple times a day, every day, because I've watched it so many times and I think about it and I have this podcast here. Uh, but, you know, this is one of those instances where the song in the scene is ruined for me. When I hear Fields of Gold by Sting, <laughs> uh, I think of this scene because it, it just socks me in the gut and it's playing in the background while this is happening. Any so, reason why that song, you think? I didn't think of it particularly. I, I remember the song, but... Yeah, I'm not sure if there's any particular... I mean, it, it's kind of a melancholy... It's got a bit of a melancholy... Melancholy song, for sure. Yeah, I don't know... Uh, I haven't analyzed the lyrics. Yeah, I guess lyrically, I don't don't know if there's anything there. Yeah, I don't know. So we go from this heartbreaking scene into the Bing. Uh, Heartbreaking in in a different way. These two guys sitting there at the Bing again, looking at all these guys, staring at the strippers. They're old. They look like they've been sitting at the bar for 30 years. And they're seeing their future. Douchebags, nothings, as uh, Matthew says. They're complaining about it. They're talking about... We have stockbroker licenses. I went to Pace College. Sean gets it, despite being the dumber of the two characters. Like, yeah, we're working our way up. This is what you do. Pay you pay your dues kind of thing. And Matthew has just had enough. He's grown impatient. And he's encouraging uh, Sean. And, like, we got to do something. We got to, we got to, you know, we're, do, we're nothing here. We got, you know, we're nothing in this world. This is their, this is the moment where they make the decision. I wonder what finally put them over the line. Was it Furio taking the $1,000? Was it Tony and the embarrassing encounter in the bathroom? I don't know, because they have seemed, up to this point, content to pay their dues, and maybe even expecting that will take a couple of years until they have earned any kind of trust or, or a sense of noteworthiness. But I actually... It is their fault. Everything that happens is their fault. It's their fault. But they needed a mentor character. Uh, they needed somebody who would explain to them, I know this fucking sucks, guys, but this is how it is. This is the life. Right. And Christopher's been trying to say that to them, but Christopher's probably the worst boss to have because he's got no experience either. Right. They needed a pussy or they needed a some, somebody like that. Chris, probably not Richie because I think Richie would have killed them at some point. Chris's rise in the mob is because he's Tony's nephew and, and, and Tony loves him and has yeah. kind of work guided him along. The, he didn't come up on his own. Like right. these guys are. But it's not so long ago that Chris was uh, buying Schwoyadel for everybody and having to take his fucking licks too. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, he needed to be better with them. Yeah, I th- the reason I wanted our pull quote to be from the therapy scene where Tony says, not those fucking ducks again, is because of the theme of maturation and leaving the nest and preparing your children for the world. And even though that's not literally there in every story, it is in a lot of them. And... Again, as Jordan said, not to take the responsibility off of them or the onus off of Sean and Matt for what they do. It should be on them. It it does seem very clear in this episode, as has been built up to with other storylines with them, that they're not being guided in any sort of proper way. So I thought that felt folded into the theme of this episode nicely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Next scene, we get uh, <laughs> Carmella wondering what Mindspring and Earth, Mindspring and Earthlink DVD <laughs> uh, CD-ROMs are. I remember back in the early 2000s, late 90s, when you'd get these random things, and sure. everyone was still mostly using AOL, I think, at that point. <laughs> and Meadows pissed about Liliana going in her room, cleaning Meadows. You know, they have a little bit of an argument that seems like it's about to escalate. And then Carmella just takes an interesting tactic in the scene and says, you know what, you're right. You you can't take care of yourself. Very off-putting for Meadow, very unusual. Meta, Carme- this is, to me, just reads that Carmela's feeling confident. She's just did something that is, you know, she very well executed and got what she wanted out of it. And it's just, uh, she's taking some comfort. I don't need to argue. Uh, my, my do- you know, because I'm going to win in the end is kind of what I took from that. Yep. And so... Then we get this great therapy scene. Uh, and this is probably, at this point, my favorite therapy scene in season two between Tony and, and, and Melfi, where they're really on the verge of something because, uh, you know, Tony is talking about how he got Meadow the car. And he's asking the question that we had watching that episode, The Happy Wanderer, which is, why after being so secretive for so long about what he does and trying to protect them, does he rub her nose in it? And Melfi makes the connection with the ducks and that Meadow is leaving the nest soon and and he wants to reconcile what he does with Meadow, teaching her to fly. And Tony starts getting upset, says time's up. She says we still have time and we're doing good work. And Tony, you know, right when they're on the verge of something, Tony clams up. What do we make of this Melfi scene and what work the, what she's trying to do here for him and how he responds to it? She seems to be trying to reveal that at least subconsciously, Tony needs to inform Meadow of the ugliness that she comes from and that she can't forget about it because he knows that she's going to go to some amazing place, Berkeley, Georgetown, whatever. And maybe, again, the subconscious part of him feels like she can just erase her past, right? And kind of not acknowledge where she comes from and whatever. But, yeah, he needed to do something that was maybe more overt as to, like, listen, yeah, you will you might achieve the heights. You might go on to these places. You might connect with uh, great people, the people that really run this whole machine. But don't forget where you came from. I, you know, I used leverage I'm a bad guy. Uh, your car used to be your friend's car. This ugliness is on you, too. Mm. Uh, it's important for her, him to know that and for her to be a part of it, even if she knows... Sorry, even if he knows that she'll ultimately escape that. And that's a really complicated thing both to express and to understand. So he just shuts down. Oh, it's too much for him. Yeah, I mean, what are you, you going to do with that? Uh, yes, my reading of this episode is that Carmela gets farther than Tony does psychologically, and she doesn't even have a therapist. Um, she comes to a centeredness about, I think, Meadows leaving the nest simply by, in fact, in some ways by the manipulation that she's done. Tony has a therapist who leads him up to the water and says, drink. And he's like, no, I did it to rub her face and shit. It, it's incredible to me, um, to watch. Uh, it's all also suggested by Tony's gear. We've talked before, Jordan has talked, you've both spoken eloquently about clothing making the man, and in this episode one of the gestures is a jacket. He shows up to this therapy session, he looks immaculate. Mm-hmm. His suit, his tie, he's got his nice watch and everything. It's Tuesday, 3 o'clock, that's why I'm here, yep. you know, the whole thing. Uh, but when it gets tough, and as you guys said, it gets into this complicated stuff, 
He is visibly upset. He clams up. He frustratedly sits there and says, I'll sit here, but I'm not going to say anything else. Yep. Um, so. this, this is not a knock on the writing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But these therapy scenes in season two don't have the satisfaction that we had in season one. Season one, we were building towards something. There was a sense that she was... She knew what was going on before Tony did, and she was guiding him toward his revelation. We're getting the sense now at this point, and there will be more follow-up on this, I think. In very the next, soon. Very yeah. soon. But there's the sense that neither of them have any idea where this is going. And they're hitting these roadblocks, and these scenes are not leaving us with insight, but rather... Well, they're leaving the audience with insight, but they're not leaving our characters with any insight, and they're leaving... With a sense of frustration and confusion. Where is this going? How far can we go? What is going to be needed to take the next steps in this therapy? It's it's a very unsure, exploratory feel. Sure. The other prospect that I'll offer is that it's building up to something and neither of them know what it is and it could be something very unpleasant. Uh, and they don't know or they don't fully comprehend yet what that darkness is. Absolutely. Speaking of darkness... Boom! Bang, bang, bang. Bang, 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 shoot em ups. Chris is walking out of a diner, that diner 10 minutes from my house. I know right where it is by the Pulaski Skyway. And bang! Sean and Matt show up. Hey, Chris! Bang! Right in the gut. Chris hits the ground. Great acting scene. The, the, sh the, the way it's shot feels like tense and claustrophobic. Uh, Chris is scooting back. He's hit a couple times. Shoots. Boom! Chris is a dead eye, man. He hits Sean Gismonti right in the back of the head, kills him in one shot. Uh, and then Matt is just start freaks out, starts running. Sean got caught up in the seatbelt. Matt gets out, shoots back, doesn't hit him again. Gets out of the gets out of dodge, and Chris passes out in a pool of blood. And it's got to be one of the worst hits on the show. Just so sloppy. Just so speaks to who those these two kids are. Uh, you know, there's two of them armed to Chris, unarmed, un so armed but not suspecting, yeah. right? They they should have been able to finish him right then, you know? Yep. Just the fact that they fucked that up so bad. These guys are such, such fuck-ups. They're impetuous they really and they're are. not good. They're, if, if they had the least bit of brains and patience, they'd have parked, gotten out. Like a real mob, a real gangster would have parked, got out, hey, Chris, how you doing? And shot him right in the face. And right. then ran back. Or even, car. how about like, there's two of you? Yeah. Matt says, hey, Chris, how you doing? While Chris is talking to Matt, Sean shoots him in the head. Mm -hmm. You know, they just fucked it up totally. We hate seeing this happen to Chris. These kids absolutely deserve what they get. But, like, I'm just, I, my mouth actually dropped seeing this again because I haven't seen it in many years. Yeah. And I was like, I can't believe how sloppy this hit is. And they lose the car in it. Sean loses his fucking life in it because, as you said, Chris is a crack shot. And just fucking the worst. The worst. This whole sequence of events also builds, again, I, uh, this episode being a nice companion to D-Girl, which was about absurdity and the absurdity of not only Richie finding out that Tony gave the jacket away, but how he finds out what Tony did with it, um, and Sean getting stuck in the seatbelt, perhaps validating Livia's stupid idea <laughs> that seatbelts are actually dangerous. Oh, yeah, from the last episode. That. What yeah. was the lesson of that story? Not to, don't wear your seatbelt? What the fuck? Everything she tells him in that scene. Yeah, no, not, not helpful at all. Yeah, <laughs> those, people, those kids, they die in like a burning inferno car, but the seatbelt tells the them. The seatbelt did it. <laughs> yeah. What? Life is nothing and don't wear your seatbelt. What the fuck? Anyway, that's last episode. Yeah. <laughs> Livia, you can't pull us back into the previous episode. 
Um, and, and then, then Matt, Matt runs to Richie for right help. to Richie, thinking that that's in any way going to work out for him. Uh, you have to protect me. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> like, Richie's, like, coming out. He's rubbing his neck. He might have just woke up from a nap or something. He's like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> I love that line. Yep. Um, yes. Yeah, so you, did you hear what happened to Chris? Yes, someone blew him up. It was me and Sean. What the fuck are you doing here? You, you know, again, if Richie wasn't in such a volatile situation, he might have even played this. Uh, to me, the right way to play this, if you, although maybe this wouldn't have... Well, I was going to say maybe Richie should have... Brought him in and then just delivered him right to Tony. Maybe I actually think Richie pays plays the situation correctly. Yeah, but you're right. As actually, as the more I think yeah. that through, if that would just add to the idea that he and Matt were together in some yeah. way, so yeah. he has to chases him down the street very him. publicly with a baseball bat. Yep. I mean, that, I think that was the right move. Yeah, he had to show that you know. Uh, and Richie is right, right there with it. It's all I need now for that two faced ungrateful fuck to think I had any part of this. Help you? I'll fucking help you. Bottle, bat. Who told you to do that? Chases him through. That has to be Carney. Uh, that just looks like Carney to me. I'm not entirely sure where that place is, but it looks like such a hole in the wall place that you would just walk right by. Exactly. Yeah. There's so no perfect. signage. Yeah. Nothing. It's just like a a, a door, a blank door. Also, oh, this this hit and this subsequent scene with broad daylight. Mm-hmm. Matt's gushing blood. He's running on foot. I mean, oh my god. Yeah. Come on. Uh, and Richie, you know, he's not as spry as Nat and chases him out publicly, screaming at him. And uh, Chris is in the hospital, and we get the sounds of the heart monitor all the way through the credits. It's it's a cliffhanger. They don't do it often on the show. It's not a, you know, cliffhangers can be very gimmicky if they're overused, but I think they do a nice job here. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think this is too quote-unquote cheap. I think it's a good way to end the episode. Man, and uh, yeah, any uh, any last thoughts? Things we missed, something you want to cover about uh, this episode, full full leather jacket. Yeah, I just I want to acknowledge something Paul had mentioned earlier that you know there's this parallel storytelling in this episode in terms of like offerings and and what they come to mean symbolically, what they come to mean in terms of concrete plot structure. Um, you know, uh, Christopher's proposal has come to mean something. There's the offering of of the ring, Carmela's offering of the regat pie, right? This comes to mean something. You know, Richie's offering of the jacket. You know, even uh, the hit on Christopher, it's meant to be a symbolic offering. Everyone is looking to someone above them in some way to uh, to deliver them, to liberate them, to give them a sense of control. But oftentimes, uh, it seems these offerings uh, are just as likely to hurt in some way, right? That there's no guarantee that uh, you'll be paid back in kind for your offering or that'll be interpreted correctly. So that the rules here are are unkind. It, it's almost like you're, when you're offering to fate, fate can give you back sort of whatever it wants. There's almost like a, a cosmic quality to this episode. Well said. Yes, uh, I would say something very similar, only that like I think the, yeah, these offerings and gestures, they, they often have strings attached, they can be underappreciated, misunderstood, and the baggage that they hold for the characters can lead to confusion, anger, frustration... And all of that leads to this last moment where Tony repeats the last line twice. How could this happen? And it's not that we precisely know every step of the way how these things always work out. But in this world and in this episode, my sneaking suspicion was we do know how these things happen. Mm -hmm. These offerings take on a meaning, but we don't agree on them. We There are things that are unspoken between us. There's guilt. There's baggage. There's 
whatever it is that you're trying to get done, and it can lead to these kinds of problems. So it did leave me with that sad feeling that I think we might instinctively know how these things happen. Right, and and oftentimes, uh, absolutely, I, I agree. I think there's a causation here. With these offerings specifically, they... Um... They almost never seem to do what they were intended to do in this episode, right? I mean, hardly a one. The, and, ra- the ramp is an offering of sorts. Exactly. That, that I, was, goes, I was just yeah. getting to that. Uh, they don't actually perform the function of what they're supposed to do. They don't fix anything. I can offer you a ramp up to your house, but I, I can't make you walk again. I can't take back what I did. Some, some, this is also a form of expression, these offerings. I can't really directly tell you what it means for me that you invited me into your home and that we shared a connection, but I can bring you this tripe and hope that that is enough, right? I can't tell you that something really bad's going to happen to you if you don't write this letter, but here's a regat pie as a reminder. You know, there's a lot of that going on where we have this, this passing of symbols, but the symbols bear more weight than I think they realize. Certainly so, and we're going to see how that all bears out in the very next episode. I keep saying this, but they keep cranking out favorites. It's Next episode is a favorite of mine. I can't wait to do From Where to Eternity. It's the first outing for Michael Imperioli as a writer on the show. We're going to talk a lot about that when we do it. And I can't wait. we got a big one next time. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mantini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And this has been The Sopranos Podcast. We'll see you in two Sundays for your hit of Audio Sunday Dinner. Come check us out. Hit us up on social media, all that good stuff. We're excited to talk to you. See you next time. Got myself a girl.